Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Artemis, and in today's episode, we're immersing ourselves in the world of one of Britain's most ingenious poets, John Donne. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. You may recognise these words, but how much do you know about the life of the man who wrote them? Well, luckily for you, today we're heading back to the Renaissance to follow the poet John Donne around the playhouses and bear-fighting pits of London. Throughout his life, Donne played the part of student, lawyer, lover and cleric, but most importantly, he was a poet. He was famous in his time for his unusual, intelligent and imaginative poetry, which used fleas to talk about sex and violence to talk about God. And in the view of my guest today, Catherine Rundle, Dunn should be considered alongside William Shakespeare as one of the finest wordsmiths this country has ever produced. That's why she's written a sparkling new biography of the poet, Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Dunn. Catherine Rundle is a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. Her best-selling books for children have been translated into more than 30 languages and have won multiple awards. She has written for, amongst others, the London Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement and the New York Times. So, as you can imagine, it was a delight to take a travel through time with Catherine just last week. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a delight to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. So, Catherine, you're an award-winning children's book author, amongst many other things, but you wrote your doctoral thesis on Dunn. So I wanted to know what drew you back to him. Uh, I think for Dunn, it's been a lifelong love. I first read him as a child. I was paid to memorise poetry by my parents. They used to put it by the sink where we brushed our teeth. And I remember thinking that this was somebody whose grasp on human passion on human strangeness was so strong and so so bold that I fell in love with him then and have been in love with his work ever since and so I write children's books but I've been working as an academic for the last uh, decade really on John Donne and so this book is the sort of culmination of that desire I want people to fall in love with John Donne. It says in the book, this is both a biography and an act of evangelism, because I really, truly, duly believe that if you read John Donne, something inside you alights. He is, he is so new. He was so wildly original in his time. He erupted from a tradition, a poetic tradition that had been a kind of sanctified vision of desire. Um, you know, it was all very much uh, Philip Sidney was writing about women and, you know, their, their two shoulders were two white doves and their cheeks were two white doves. And you get to a point where not everything is a dove. Sometimes we aren't doves. John Donne hailed that with such passion and fervour 
he said, no, in order to express our deepest selves, we need we need fleas, we need sucking fish, we need goats, we need compasses, we need the sun rising. He was unlike anyone else, his rampant originality, I think, in some ways, serves for us as a bulwark against those who would tell you to sort of trim your imagination to the fashion of the age. He refused to do so, and in doing so, liberates us from the need to do so too. I mean, what a fantastic opening. I mean, I'm sure anyone listening is already so excited to delve more into into the man. Um, you've spoken about how Dunn's been with you your whole life and, and um, why you have, you're so enthusiastic about him. I was wondering, has your attitude to him changed at all as you've, as you've read him and poured over his life and his work? Is there anything that's come out um, as you've got older that you didn't appreciate when you were younger or vice versa? I guess two things. One would be when you're young, you don't understand uh, the nuances of the eroticism of his verse. I was obviously not memorising some of the really, really racy stuff. I think also John Dan was a deeply complicated man. And once you get through all the beautiful love poetry, he is, I think, by far the finest writer of desire in the English language. You then, of course, get to the proses and paradoxes, to the sermons. The sermons are remarkable texts in their own right, although long and difficult, because Renaissance sermons were long and difficult. But some of the prose paradoxes that he wrote, probably in his late 20s, are really bitterly mean and strange and deeply misogynistic. There's a saying in John Donne's scholarship that the more you read of his poetry, the more you love him. And the more you read of his prose, the harder he is to put up with. He was a multifaceted and not always wildly likeable man. So having spent the last decade with him, I now see this sort of smorgasbord of nuance that he was as a person. He was never a straightforward hero. He's never anything that boring. Mm. That leads me on to my next question about about biography as a genre and how does one capture all the complexities of of a human being um, in a book. I mean you've you've called the book Super Infinite, which I think nods a bit to how you've how you've done that. But would you like to talk a bit about why you decided to call the book Super Infinite? So Super Infinite is a reference in part to John Donne's desire to stretch beyond language. So it's a word that he invented, and he was a great inventor of words. There are more than 300 words in the OED that he is the first user of, although, of course, you have to be a little bit wary of that, because when people are looking for first uses, they tend to look in the canonical authors. But even so, we do know that when he came up against a a confine, he burst through it by scraping language out of the Greek, the Latin, the Hebrew, and he was someone for whom infinite was not enough. Super infinite, super miraculous, super dying. He is someone whose life has to be read in that understanding that he was this hungry, hungry soul. It's called the transformations of John Donne, in part because he had so many lives. He was a, a Catholic schoolboy at a time when to be Catholic was to be persecuted. He was a scholar of law. He was a young man about town. He was a, a law student. He was a pirate on the high seas for Elizabeth. He was then, of course, a preacher. And then he was the dean of St. Paul's. He went through such a array of shifts. But there is also the flip side that writing about John Donne has the same problem as writing about Shakespeare, which is that time eats your paperwork and the fire of London and 400 years mean that there are huge gaps in our knowledge of his biography. So that is the other reason that I want to write 
the book is in part about the life, but in part about the verse, because there are places where all we have is the verse or the prose. There are times when you just have to acknowledge, you just have to salute the gap in his life because we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And there have been um, other biographies of um, John Donne. What did you want to communicate about Donne in, in this biography that you felt hadn't been captured in previous ones? I think it was less that than wanting to offer a vision of what John Donne might do for you how he might transform you. It's the transformations of John Donne, but by the end, the hope is that the transformation is of the reader, because I think John Donne's poetry is transformational. I think John Donne's poetry is so liberating because of its desire that we pay attention. It is difficult. John Donne is always said to be one of the most difficult poets in English language, and it is true that he makes nothing easy for us. But that making nothing easy is deliberate and it has in it a moral imperative that we pay attention, that attention is the most generous gift you can give to the world and to another soul. And that kind of absolute insistence on your focus, your intelligence, that you offer it to his poetry and thereby also to the world itself. I love that about him and I wanted to put forward that vision of John Donne that vision of John Donne and also that of his saluting of human strangeness. And I guess most of all, John Donne was very sad a lot of the time. He had a brutal life. Um, Some of it we will talk about later, but uh, for instance, um, his great uncle is said to have been hung, drawn and quartered potentially in front of him. His uncle was put in the Tower of London and he went as a tiny little anxious boy with his mother into the Tower of London on what was a sort of, it looked like a family trip, but in fact his mother was bringing in another Jesuit to speak to his uncle to exchange information. And John Donne was basically the cover. And then he married and he had children and he lost six of those children, six babies, and he lost his wife. And He was himself suicidal throughout his entire life. He wrote the first ever full-length English treatise on suicide. And yet, he is one of the writers in the English language who insists most passionately on awe and on joy. He went into the pulpit and he said, those who fail to laugh, that is a stupidity, that is a contempt. He said, you know... The body is like the great semaphore of the human living infinite. He he saw our beauty and our wonder. And he, if you read his poetry in a rush, and then you read some of his prose, it feels like you are being told it is an astonishment to be alive and it behoves you therefore to be astonished. And so, you know, the astonishments of John Donne would also have been a workable subtitle. I love him for that, for his sense that, yes, It is impossible. Yes, it is awful. Yes, we are a disaster as humanity. We are also a miracle and the greatest miracle in the world. Oh, Catherine, I mean, what a wonderful introduction. I'm so excited to head to your chosen year and to meet the man himself. So if you could travel through time, what year would you choose to visit? So I would go to 1601 and I would go to London, to a London that was 
on the cusp of so many changes and a London that was so busy and energetic and a London that had such bite and so many secrets. It was a London that if you took it and turned it upside down and shook it, so many passions and so much machinating and so much strangeness would fall out. Mm. So um, before we head to your first scene, could you tell us a bit about what Dunn's life had been like up until this year? What was his background? Where was he born? Um, yeah, where was he when we get to 1601? Brilliant. So John Dunn uh, was born 1572 in Bread Street, which is in the centre of London. And he was in fact born with a view of St Paul's Cathedral. So one of the very few people born with view of his final working place and also his final resting place, which I think must be unusual. He went very young to Oxford, um, in part because he was potentially a little bit of a wunderkind, but largely because it was impossible for Catholics to take degrees or to study there without signing the oath to Elizabeth. And if you went under 16, you didn't have to. So he went at about 12 with his little brother, Henry. Uh, Henry was a year younger and he went to Oxford and there I think he collided with the idea of poetry as something important. I think it's easy to forget now that we have so many other ways of amusing ourselves how absolutely key poetry was to life at the time. Poetry probably mattered at that point more than any other point in English history. And it could be so many things. Poetry could be a love note, of course. It could be a thank you note. It could be an invoice. It could be uh, a piece of slander. It could be a brilliant joke. It could be propaganda. It could be rebellion. It could be so many things. And he came across people who were writing remarkable poetry at the time. He also came across some of his lifelong friends, uh, such as Henry Wotton, who went on to be an ambassador. He met people who were good at making friends. And then he went to the Inns of Court, to London, and there he had his first experience of what it might be to be a free-living scholar. But quite swiftly after that, his little brother Henry followed him to the Inns of Court. And Henry, we don't know why, but Henry decided to try to harbour a Catholic priest in his lodgings. He was only 19, otherwise he would have known that it would be impossible, because how could he keep another man in his lodgings, get rid of the waste and bring them food and change the bedding without someone finding out? Someone did find out. And his rooms were raided and he was arrested. At the time, the penalty for being a Catholic priest was death. And Henry was thrown into prison. And at the time, plague was racing through the prisons. And it was said by some that he was put in a particularly plague-ridden prison, Newgate, on purpose to murder him. That probably isn't true, but John Donne may well have believed it. John Donne, as far as we know, didn't visit Henry. He waited a few days. He didn't know that he didn't have days. And Henry died horribly and alone of plague, covered in plague sores. And I think that was a great rupture in Dunn's life and a great horror. So soon after, he left the Inns of Court and probably around that time, he started to convert from the Catholicism of his birth to Protestantism. We'll never know when that happened. Some people will even say perhaps it didn't happen. Perhaps he was not so much an apostate as somebody who saw that it was impossible to move through Elizabethan London as a Catholic, recognise the brilliance of his own mind and recognise that that brilliance would only have free reign if he at least ostensibly converted. 
there will be no way to know and everyone is going to have to make up their own minds about that one. But he decided to go like a young adventurer to the high seas and he went to try to storm Cadiz with Sir Walter Riley. It was first expedition was a financial disaster, but a PR success and they stormed the city. And so he had had a taste of what it was to be on the high seas. The second expedition was a disaster. He came back and he went to work for Sir Thomas Edgerton, keeper of the high seals. So he was um, perhaps the most important lawyer in Elizabethan England. And he went to live in his house in a very intimate way that secretaries had with their masters. And that is where we find him in 1601, a young man about town uh, with a reasonable wage. And he is also, I think this is important, incredibly good looking. John Donne is one of the sexiest poets that you will ever see. I mean, Shakespeare, I'm very sorry, looks like someone's headmaster. John Donne, there's a portrait of him by an unknown artist known as the Lothian portrait. You can probably picture it. It's one with the big hat and the very red lips and the incredibly finessed moustache. And he was beautiful. And he was a beautiful young man about town, allowing his imagination to take flight. Mm. I love that description because I think it tells us um, something of the traumatic experiences of, of Dunn's life thus far, that, that form, who he is as a person. And I kind of like it in contrast to the scene that we're about to visit now. So, Catherine, would you like to tell us where we are in our first scene in 1601? Right. So, 1601 and John Dunn strolling the streets of London, knowing that he is already among his small coterie of friends and rippling out from that group, known as a man of astonishing intelligence, someone who wears his wit like a knife in his shoe. He was writing poetry for this group of friends um, that had in it a kind of originality that already people were marvelling at. Uh, Ben Jonson, for instance, said, you know, he wrote his best works before he was about 25. And he was able to put down in words so much of the energy of what it is to be young and desiring. Um, So you picture him walking through London, uh, along down by the river. And uh, we know that John Donne uh, had a thing for animals. There's many, many animal imageries. There's an entire book called John Donne and Animals much animal imagery in his work. He loved bears. And so I am imagining John Donne on his way to the bear baiting. There's a really wonderful image in one of his poems about the idea of the bear cub. So there was this fabulous uh, myth at the time, which I love, uh, which had originated from Pliny, that when a baby bear is born, it isn't uh, fully formed. The mother bear has to lick it into shape. It's just a lump of flesh. It has no eyes and the mother licks its eyes into being. And John Donne has this fabulous moment in one of his love poems where he writes about the idea that we must not, in the fervour of our love, you know, devour chunks of each other. He writes, love's a bear whelp born. If we all lick our love and force it new strange shapes to take, we err, and of a lump a monster make. And I love that. Shakespeare uses the same idea of the unformed bear whelp in um, Henry VI Part Three, when Gloucester is like to a chaos or an unlicked bear whelp. And so John Donne, down by the river, down by the bear baiting, 
would have been seeing a kind of vision of bloodthirsty England, of wild England, um, this desire that we have always had to see things stronger than us uh, stand and roar and be in our power. There was uh, There's a quote, a very famous one from one of Elizabeth first courtiers about it. It was a very pleasant sport to see, the bear with his pink eyes tearing after his enemy's approach. With biting, with clawing, with roaring, with tossing and tumbling, he would work and wind himself from them. And when he was loose, shake his ears twice or thrice with the blood and slather hanging about his physiognomy. The bears were never baited to death because they were too uh, valuable. So they fought over and over again and they became celebrities. There was one called Boss, one called Samson, one called Harry of Tame. Um, and so John Donne would have been there in amongst the kind of flurry and fire of that. And then from there, John Donne with his bears. He might perhaps have gone to see his friends in the taverns that were next door. As I'm sure you will know, there would be the bear baiting, which would be next to the theatres, which would be next to the brothels, which would be next to the taverns. And they would all be jostling up against each other. And then we would have John Donne creating this verse and passing it on to his friends. And I think often people uh, picture John Donne's verse passing through the world with greater neatness than was really the case. His poetic life was just a chaos. He didn't guard his talent. He didn't write down his poetry in an exquisite leather-bound tome. He wrote it in these little slippets of paper, scribbled out, and then they would be passed to a friend, folded into eight, tucked into a sleeve, tucked into a pocket, put in a letter and sent to a friend who would copy it out and send it to another friend. And by that way, his poetry would begin to ripple out across the whole of England. And it meant also that later when he became a priest, he tried to recall some of his racier poetry and found it was impossible because it had spread far beyond his own control. It also means, of course, that for scholars, there is only one poem in English in John Donne's handwriting, no love poetry. And so when you read a poem by John Donne, you're actually reading a poem by John Donne and by a lot of educated guesswork by generations of scholars who have been dealing with hundreds and hundreds of different variant versions of the same poem. Um, so for instance, one of the poems he might have been writing at the time would have been something like The Flea. Uh, the flea is famous for um, imagining a flea crawling about the body of a woman that John Donne is trying to seduce. And it's almost certainly not actually written for an actual woman. He wasn't thinking that he could seduce a real woman by offering her this poem. It's much more likely that it was a pose struck and sent to a group of male hyper-educated friends. And it's one of my favourites because it's so wildly strange. It begins, mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee, and in this flea are two bloods mingled be. And when that poem was printed after John Donne's life, uh, they very deliberately used the long S. The long S looks like an F, a form of typography. And therefore, if you think of that third line, it sucked me first and now sucks thee, it was a very deliberate hat tip to a possible other reading. 
the person who was setting it had taken on board some of that John Donne ribaldry that we see in this moment, in his late 20s, striding through the world. Mm. Oh, wonderful and so, so vivid. Um, I wanted to talk a bit more about um, this um, dissemination of his poetry um, and also the fact that you talk about in the book how it was very common for men of um, Dunn's background to write poetry, um, how it was like a common form of um, communication and entertainment. I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about that because I think I think nowadays lots of people find writing poetry incredibly hard and daunting so I kind of found it fascinating this idea that there was another in the past Maybe you weren't very good at writing poetry, but it would come much more naturally to you. Is is that the case, or were was poetry reserved for people who were actually really good at it, like Dunn? Poetry was definitely not reserved for people who were good at it, as any reading of the commonplace books that existed in the 16th and 17th centuries would tell you. There was a lot of very bad poetry. I think one of the reasons that there was so much poetry was that people were taught how to write it from a young age. The upper middle classes and middle classes of England were the men were hyper educated in this kind of literariness. They would be taught to translate things into and out of Latin, into and out of Greek. And the knowledge of form and rhythm would have just been drilled into them at school. So the idea that a sonnet is a difficult thing to write, of course a sonnet is a difficult thing to write, but it would have been easier if you had been writing sonnets since you were about 12. And so this idea that the poetry offered you a pre-existing form, whether you were going in hexameters, whether you were going with sonnets, whether you were trying a mock epic, it offered you a vehicle to express the thing you wanted to express, whether that was a a very um, cliched and delighting love or whether you were trying to write philosophy, you had a ready set way in which to put those thoughts out into the world. So people were writing a huge amount of verse and it was also the tradition of verses of compliment. So many of the letters that would have been passing through England would have been these Uh, ornate, quite highfalutin uh, missives of very extravagant flattery. And John Donne very much participated in that. The difference is always that just he tends to be better at it. Mm. It's kind of reminding me of this is, I don't know if this is at all a helpful comparison, but how um, young people are really like, um, tech savvy and like know how to make TikToks or little videos or like content online content and it becomes a very natural form and you can express lots and lots of different emotions through you know a particular and you know the sort of conventions of that particular medium it's almost a bit like that but obviously not as <laughs> much <laughs> more exactly intellectual what? than that there yeah. is something you know if you grow up able to do something and it's drilled into you from a child it doesn't feel like a great act of Um, purposiveness. It's just in your tradition and you Mm. step into it in the same way you step into your clothes. I wanted to talk a bit about Dunn's background and he'd obviously, he'd mixed with people from the upper classes at Oxford and at the Inns of Court, but where did he kind of stand in the social order and how great an effect did that have on him um, in his professional life? So John Dunn's background is slightly complicated by the fact of their Catholicism. They were squarely upper middle class. John Donne's mother was descended from Sir Thomas More, of course, the Chancellor of England, and 
they had at one point had a fairly hefty fortune which had been denuded by the various attacks on Catholic prosperity over the last hundred years or so. So they had a strange and liminal position socially. Had they been Protestants, the money from which they came and their access to sort of cultural authorities would certainly have made them upper middle class. But because they were Catholic, they were always going to be on the edges of things and always, if not dangerous to know, there would always be a question mark over their suitability. Uh, When John Donne came to woo, his Catholicism was certainly one of the things that counted against him, even though by that point he was not necessarily a practicing Catholic. And John Donne became very fixed on noting that kind of social position. So he he is one of the very few poets I can think of who mentions in one of his poems having a, a sort of gentleman's gentleman, like the Renaissance equivalent of that. Um, people often ask, would John Donne have known Shakespeare? And we don't know. There's no way of knowing. They had so many friends in common that it's likely that perhaps they might at one point have been in the same room. But John Donne would probably have thought Shakespeare as the son of a glover, somebody who was potentially a little bit damaging to one's position to spend too much time with. I don't, we don't have evidence that he was a rampant snob. I don't think he was. We do have evidence that his son was a rampant snob. He had a son called John Donne Jr., who sounds like an absolute little... um, (laughs) Um, a horror bag. John Donne Jr., after his father's death, edited his letters and changed the names of the recipients to make them as if he was writing to dukes and lords and ladies when he was just writing to his friends. So John Donne Jr. was certainly interested in elevating the family position. I think our John Donne, it was a more complicated business than that. He wanted to make it into the world and he wanted the brilliance of his mind to take purchase on the world but he wasn't he wasn't as straightforwardly sort of social climbing as his son Mm -hmm. well thank you i think that's a a kind of important factor to understand or important context to understand this world catherine would you like to tell us where we're going for our second scene in 1601 so our next scene we're going to keep walking through london and past the bear baiting past the brothels And we're going to arrive at the theatre and we're going to go to the first showing of Hamlet. We're going to add the hefty caveat that no one actually knows when the first showing of Hamlet was. First performance is often given as 1601. There are some people who think it was early as 1597 and some people who think it may have been later in about 1602. It could have been at the Globe. It could have been at a theatre called The Theatre. What we do know Two things. One, John Donne loved the theatre. And we know that he was a great visitor of ladies and a tender of plays at this time in his life. And I think that's quite important because you find so much of his poetry sounds a little bit like the theatre. So often you're, it's as if you're being dropped into a dialogue, dropped into a scene that is mid-action. So for instance, to his mistress going to bed, which is one of his most famous poems and one of the most copied poems, one of the most popular. Again, probably written more for his male friends than for a woman. You open as if in the middle of a wooing, as if it is a speaker trying to convince a woman to take her clothes off. 
Um, I'm going to read just a tiny little bit because please, it's so fantastic. Do, yeah. So everybody knows the most remarkable bit. So it begins, come, madam, come. All rest my powers defy until I labour, I in labour lie. And he tries to convince her, you know, off with that wiry coronet and show the hairy diadem which on you doth grow. Now off with those shoes and then safely tread in this love's hallowed temple, this soft bed. And then the very famous bit, of course, is license my roving hands and let them go before, behind, between, above, below. Oh, my America, my newfound land, my kingdom safeliest when with one man manned, my mine of precious stones, my empery, how blessed am I in this discovering thee. This poem is often criticised for the fact that it can sound like a domineering figure, but there's a joke at the end. At the end, only one of them is naked, and it's the man. He says, and of course it is itself also a vivid pun, to teach thee I am naked first. Why then, what needst thou have more covering than a man? <laughs> and I love this, that written into this kind of whirlwind act of rhetoric, there is the sense it has its own lack of success built into it. Maybe she'll take her clothes off after the end of the poem, but maybe she won't. We don't know. All we know is that he is naked. And so that kind of theatricality, I think, will have been profoundly informed by the stage. And of course, it was a moment of incredible excitement. Some of the finest plays ever written being written around him in his city, in his moment. And so... I imagine him going off to the globe and going to see some of the most extraordinary theatre. So probably Hamlet would have been played by Richard Burbage. He was the most famous tragedian in The Lord Chamberlain's Men. And he had two things that were famous about him. So he was brilliant at swordplay and he had a astonishing memory for lines. So that's why probably we can have Hamlet in such a colossal part and he could trust Hamlet with it. And we also know that, for instance, the gravedigger would probably have been played by Robert Armin, who was this fascinating figure of the Renaissance stage. Shakespeare worked with two main clown figures. So the early plays, he's working with a man called William Kemp, who was a kind of jocular everyman who was a brilliant dancer and he's like the Dogsbury figure in Much Ado and then later in his career he's working with Armin who is this deeply knowing educated quite cunning figure who had an amazing gift for mimicry and was referred to as a hunchback and so he's a much more intellectual kind of clown figure and that's where you get the clown in Lear and probably the sort of jousting figure of the gravedigger would have been him. And he would have been able to buy snacks. You could always buy snacks at the theatre. So I think it's very likely that John Donne would have gone to see Hamlet. It was a phenomenon in its time. It was Shakespeare's probably fourth most popular play. He would have gone, he would have had his snacks because you can always buy snacks at the theatre. And he would have witnessed this astonishing piece of literature, this astonishing experience of the theatre just unfolding around him. And I love to think of him there. I love to think of someone brilliant witnessing such brilliance. It yeah. must have been an incredible thing. I wonder if he was jealous. 
Yeah, well, I I wanted to talk a bit about that because you you mentioned earlier this um oh, this tantalising thought that they could have been in the same room as each other. These two enormous talents who are both um whose work has kind of echoed um down the centuries in such powerful ways. Um, I just I just I have something about that I find so enchanting. What was it about this period that enabled writers like Shakespeare and Donne to produce the work that they did? Was there was there something about this particular moment in English history, or was it just that these are two talents, uh, enormous talents and geniuses who are working as there are at any given point in history, and they just also happen to be working at the same time? I love the question, and it's one that people think about so much, about what was it that allowed so much to flourish in the moment? I think there are some things which are very straightforward, for instance, no famine and relative peace and a moment of hyper-education. As I was saying, it's one of the most educated uh, bodies of people. And then things like for Shakespeare, his success is deeply entwined with the fact that he could, for the first time, work with his actors. And he was one of the first playwrights to really make money from the stage. Before that, you would make most of your money by patronage. But he was a part sharer, so he would get a collecting from the incomings of the theatre, which meant that he was rich. And so many other playwrights of the period who didn't have part shares in a theatre, we have all these fabulous begging letters when they're asking, you know, a a few shillings to get them through uh, to the next week. Shakespeare had a library with books in it that he could sit in and write. And he had these deep understandings of the personalities of the group he was working for. So the previous traditions of a kind of quite, quite classical form, like the Latinate and sort of Greek, like this sort of stichomythic exchange where you would have people giving these very one line and then another line, one line, then another line, single sentences. He could explore the kind of emotional depths of his own actors and the ways that they intertwined, he could work with them. So I think for him, it was a kind of perfect storm. And for John Donne, I think there is something similar. He was never asked, apart from his brief moment as a privateer, to go to war. He was given an education that meant that at 16, he probably knew more than I knew at 28 possibly the age I am now, 34. And he he had, I think, a freedom of intellect. It's not that the Elizabethan um, government and crown didn't censor its people. It absolutely did. They both lived in a time where they were spied upon constantly by their government. You had to expect that your letters might be read. You had to expect that your plays would be censored, that your poems could be seen as dangerous, when John Donne wrote by Athanatos, which was his full-length treatise on suicide, in which he lays out how he himself has desired to turn his sword upon himself. He gives it to a friend later and says, essentially hide this. Don't publish it and don't burn it. Just keep it and don't show it to anyone. Because suicide was illegal. Uh, It was ironically punishable by death. And so it could have got him into trouble and there might even be something that 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 element of pressure put on you by a government means that your talent has to come out sideways that you have to find ways around these interdictions and that those interdictions create a kind of flourishing of strange 
sort of coded ways of writing that have in them a lot of power. Although that sounds like I'm saying that censorship creates great literature, which I really don't <laughs> think is the case. But there was something, there was a perfect storm mm. in the world through which they moved, I think, which meant that their writing was spectacular. Yeah, I understand. I completely um I completely see what you mean. It's almost like um that thing that people often say that great art often comes from people who've grown up in places where there really isn't anything going on that sometimes great art is is formed under these quite intense claustrophobic conditions where you think I'm under threat from the state or god I'm just really really bored and I wish <laughs> I wish I was somewhere else. There's nothing that quite brings the past to life like travelling to see where a momentous event took place. Where an art movement sprang to life, a battle raged, or the first notes of a symphony sounded. If you're culturally curious and looking for a holiday with a difference, take a look at Ace Cultural Tours, who sponsored this episode of Travels Through Time. They've been taking tour groups globetrotting for over 60 years and their tours cover a range of interests and destinations with plenty on offer in the UK as well as further afield. All ACE tour groups are hosted by subject experts who are often able to provide exclusive access visits to private art collections, houses and gardens. Whether you want to feel the wind in your hair on the Roman frontier at Hadrian's Wall, follow in the footsteps of Picasso and Matisse around the Côte d'Azur, or contemplate hundreds of years of worship at Japan's oldest surviving temple, ACE are sure to have something for you. Find out more via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly team on 01223-841055. That's 01223-841055. Well, thank you for for sharing that with us, and that image of the theatre um, was was beautiful. I think it's time for us to head to our final scene, our climax um, of sixteen oh one, which I think is going to serve as a really interesting contrast to the su- the two scenes that we started with. So, where are we in our third and final scene? So, in our third and final scene, our love poet has fallen in love, and is on his way to be married. So. For all the kind of rakish, wild poetry that he was creating, there was another kind of poetry that he was writing, which was probably for one specific person, uh, a girl called Anne Moore. He first met her when he was in his mid-twenties and she was about 15. And she was the niece of Sir Thomas Edgerton, the Keeper of the Great Seal. And they will have met while they were living in the same house because the niece had been sent to live with the uncle in order to learn the ways of high society. Um, Her father was Sir George Moore and she was expected to make a much better match than a penniless ex-Catholic scribbler with a dead brother. But... (laughs) Sorry, what a great... (laughs) Such a great description. (laughs) That can be the tagline for the episode. (laughs) (laughs) But she fell in love and we don't know much about their courtship because, alas, we have no definite love letters. We have a few letters which might be love letters from him. We have nothing in her hand. But we know that he began to court her. And we know that over those years, he started writing poetry that was for her. So her name, Anne Moore, he puns on the Moore over and over again. There's 
One of my favourite poems is called Love's Growth and it begins, I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was, because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite, if spring make it more. And that more means that for all the millions and millions of people who have read and loved that poem since, it was different for her. The only thing was, it was completely illegal to marry her. She was 17, so not of age. They married during Lent, which meant that it was also illegal. And they went, therefore, to the Savoy, as in the Savoy Hotel, which back then was a sort of, it had been a hospital, so it had a chapel. And now it was a essentially a set of flats for the rich and glamorous to stay in when they didn't want to take a home in London. And so they will have gone. She will have had to escape her house somehow without people knowing. They met a few weeks before Christmas. One of John Donne's friends was a priest, and so he conducted the wedding. Uh, We know almost nothing about it. You can imagine her because you can imagine what she wore. People didn't wear white. That was... um, only established by Queen Victoria. And there were sumptuary regulations at the time, which meant that there were certain colours you couldn't wear unless you had a certain class. So for instance, you could only wear purple velvet if you were the daughter of an earl. Um, She might have worn red or gold, um, but not all gold, because that would have been illegal too. Probably, given how hurried and secret and rushed it was, she probably just wore whatever she had on. And there they were. They swore to love each other. The uh, church service was exactly the same then as it was now. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer. And they married. And then they just went home to their separate homes to wait for a good moment to break the news. And the good moment didn't come. So in the end, John Donne just had to write a letter to Sir George Moore saying, I love your daughter. I have married her. Essentially, sort of, please forgive me. And he was not forgiven. I think John Donne expected it to be unpopular. I don't think he knew how dramatically unpopular it would be. He was arrested and thrown in jail. And not even the glamorous Tower of London, which had a kind of aura of the romance of royalty to it. He was put in the Fleet Prison, which was a debtor's prison, which was covered in lice. It was said that there was a carpet of insects as you crunched your way through this prison. It was a few weeks before Christmas, so it was freezing cold when he got married. In fact, it, it was the next year that he would have been thrown in jail. And then he had to work double time to try to find lawyers who would endorse that his marriage was legal. And we have all these letters that he wrote to Sir Thomas Edgerton, his employer, and to George Moore, his new father-in-law, begging to be let out, begging to be forgiven. And in the end, he was allowed out and sent to house arrest. And he never got his job back. He was fired and remained fired. So he was at last deemed to have married Anne legally. Uh, He did some very clever uh, lawyering that I won't go into, but is in the book. And was allowed to take his bride into his arms, but he had no job, no money, and no house. And so their married life together, you know, the greatest love poet of all time, began his great love experiment with a real whimper, not a bang. And in fact, what happened was Anne had a cousin that they went to live with in the countryside, and they started trying to build a life together, and it would be very difficult, very complicated in the years ahead. 
but they had taken this great leap of hope together. And I find it a remarkable thing that they they dared it. And the daring, whether it paid off or not, is debatable. But the great leap, I think, was a leap worth taking. Yeah, it's it's a it's a remarkable story, and I think it can be almost too easy to be quite cynical about relationships or love or marriages in the past. It's so easy to say, well, you know, um, it was a a, ma- a match of advantage, or um, it was about lust, or there was something else going on. I think it's um, people seem sometimes a bit reluctant to say, well, they just fell in love with each other and they just had to be with each other, and that certainly seems the case. Um, because why else would um, John and Anne risk so much by being together? Is that a fair assessment, would you say? I think so. I think it's one of those ones where we have so little information that we will have to make up our own minds. So, for instance, there are two possible reckonings. One is that he loved her wildly, as wildly as the love poetry would suggest, and that she loved him back. Uh, She could probably read fluently and write, which made her somewhat unusual among women. Dunn's best friend refers to the learned hand of your mistress. So there is this thing where it was a colliding of hearts that was unbeatable and that they decided that they would be together against everything else and that the love poetry that comes after the marriage is some of the finest. The Sun Rising is written several years after their marriage so there is this vision that that they loved wildly and acted wildly. There is another one, which is that she was pregnant. She didn't have a child nine months after the marriage, but some Dunn scholars surmise, without much, there isn't evidence, but a guess that potentially she was pregnant when um, they married and that George Moore potentially gave her something to make her miscarry or she miscarried uh, naturally. And then they married and... There are these letters that he writes in the sort of about five, six, seven years after their marriage where they had children very quickly and where he clearly is not a very impressive father and he struggles with domesticity and he wants to be in London where the action is and where the the sort of great intellects of the age are unfurling. So there are two reckonings. There's the sceptical one where he married her because she was richer and posher and he thought she might be a leg up and she wasn't and that he then resented her and spent a lot of time trying to get to London away from her. Or there's the one where it was real love and you offer them uh, the generosity of believing in their belief. And I think you've really got to make up your own mind on that one. Um, There's no real way of knowing. One thing we do know is that I lean more towards the idea, because of how remarkable the poetry is, that they were in love. But for Anne, there is no doubt but that it was a gamble that showed that love is not always enough in the long run. She went on to be pregnant 12 times in their 17-year-old marriage. She, She was essentially pregnant or healing from pregnancy her entire adult life. She died uh, in her very early 30s after the birth of her 12th child. And he had spent a lot of time at that point away from her in London, trying to make his way in the world. She was potentially left alone a lot. There's no way but that she was in, after 12 pregnancies, a lot of physical pain and she died. Love is not enough. The greatest love story ends 
darkly. He mourned her with a kind of intensity of passion which suggests that there had been great love. But it didn't stop him contributing to her death. So their love story is a complicated and knotty one. And in the book, there are several chapters about her experience, such as we can gain it from uh, other people's letters and about the children and that experience. And it was very, very complicated. One thing we do know, though, about the sun rising is that it is this fabulous poem of defiance. So it was written once King James had come to the throne, so years after they were married. And it has this joke about her father-in-law in it. Um, her father-in-law, George Moore, had written a, a treatise called A Demonstration of God in His Works, in which he writes about the sun rising uh, in a kind of quite like muscular Christian way. He's playing on Psalm 19, but he says... Who seeth not the glorious arising of the sun, his coming forth as a bridegroom out of his chamber, and his rejoicing like a mighty man to run his race? And John Donne refuses to honour the sun and to rejoice like a mighty man. And instead, famously, he writes, Busy old fool, unruly sun, why dost thou thus through wind and those and through curtains call on us? He's laughing a little bit at his father-in-law's slightly awkward literary efforts. And he is saying, you know, we here in this room, the two of us bathed in the light of the sun, that is the centre of the world. Mm. Well, that's a lovely image to, to leave them. And I think it's, I like to, I like the idea of leaving them in, in that state rather in later on um, in their marriage, perhaps. If you could talk to Dunn, Presuming we are in 1601 and we are we're accompanying him around these different um, different places that he visited, what would you like to ask him? Oh, um, there are so many things. Just uh, for the subject of my doctorate, it would have been helpful to know: Did you actually convert? Because you know, getting an authoritative take on that would be very helpful professionally. <laughs> <laughs> I would ask him about how he saw the world, and I would ask him. What is it that you think of us, humanity? Tell me what you believe about people. Mm. I would love to know because we're just guessing from the verse. But the person that he offers us, the freedom from cliche that he offers us, this sense of a poetry that insists on attention. I love him for that. His sense that you are infinitely strange and you need to offer the world infinite attention. There's this wonderful quote that he wrote later in life in his sermons. He says, Now was there ever any man seen to sleep in the cart between Newgate and Tyburn? Tyburn being where you went to be hanged. Uh, between the prisoner and the place of execution, does any man sleep? And we sleep all the way from the womb to the grave. We are never thoroughly awake and awake is John Donne's cry. And it's in the poetry, in this demand that you pay attention to the poetry in order to uncrack it. Because if you do, it's like cracking a safe and there is gold inside. And I would have loved to meet somebody who pays such attention to the world, such ferocious and hungry attention. I find that so beautiful. And I love that he makes demands of us. Why should anything be easy? Nothing worth having is really easy. Mm. 
Oh, Catherine, it's so wonderful to hear you talk about um, talk about John Donne. Um, it makes me want to go back and, and read the poetry again and again. Before we head back into the present and we leave John and Anne in their lovely bed, bathed in sunlight in the early morning, you're allowed to bring back a memento with you. What would you like to bring? So I would love to meet John Donne and say, please, can I have your commonplace book? A commonplace book was a collection of snippets. As you read your books, you would write out little quotes that mattered most to you. So your commonplace book became a record of that which seemed important to you about the world. And it would be whatever quotes like struck at your heart. And we don't have access to his commonplace book. We know that it existed. We know he left it to Isaac Walton, his biographer. It then disappeared. And if I could bring it back from the past, it would cause such chaos in John Donne's studies it would be heaven yeah that's I was hoping you would choose that one because I I I mean I actually make a scrapbook myself and I kind of love the idea I always think it's like a bit juvenile and I love the idea of this great intellect John Donne having a kind of scrapbook of things that he likes as well I know it's not quite as as basic as that but it's a wonderful idea well, Catherine, it's been such a joy to speak to you and I hope that anyone listening is inspired to go and read um, some John Donne themselves and we'll definitely put some extracts of his poetry on the website, I think, to go with this page. But thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. Thank you so much for having me. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Catherine Rundle about the year 1601 and the poet John Donne. You can find out more about this episode and any of our others by heading over to our website, tttpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.